welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. In 2 Samuel chapter 17 and Psalm 42, so if you want to turn to one, either, or both of those, you're more than welcome to. Uh, we've been in a series the past several days, called, or the past several weeks, called Thirsty for God. And we've been looking at the story of David, of King David. And it's quite a tragic story. As, as he is the king, and, and he is working, and all of a sudden his own son turns against him, and the son Absalom looks at David and decides, I should be king. And so for the past several weeks, we've been kind of tracking David's story as, as he flees the palace, and he leaves his throne, and he wanders out in the desert, literally running for his life as his son Absalom takes over the kingdom behind him. Now, as we've been looking at this story, we've been asking a couple of questions. Number one is, what, what is God doing in David's life? It's not just about the story. It's not about knowing that David lived in the desert. It's not about knowing all the conversations that happened. It's about what does God want out of David? And why is God allowing this to happen? And secondly, we're asking the question, why did God record it for us? So what is God trying to do in our hearts with this story? And what we found is that, that this is teaching us something about the nature of God and being thirsty for God. Last week we looked at the story when Absalom rides into Jerusalem and he takes the place as the acting king. He sits on the throne, he takes over the palace and he calls his advisors to him and says, I need advice. What is the next step? How do I get rid of David's authority once and for all? And so he had called, first he called Ahithophel, a trusted advisor of David, Bathsheba's grandpa, who, who left David and he walked, uh, or went to Absalom to be on his side. And Ahithophel said, the time to strike is now. Take 12,000 men and go kill David. This was a death sentence because David wasn't ready for a battle yet. And Absalom calls on another advisor, Hushai. But Hushai was a spy for David. And he, he wanted to give Absalom the worst possible advice he could. And so when Absalom asked him, Hushai, what do you say? Hushai says, oh, that's a bad plan. David is a fighter. He's ready to fight right now. What you need to do is you need to take some time and you need to get a bigger army to go attack David. And Absalom takes Hushai's advice. And so the next little bit of chapter 17 is Hushai working through a network of spies to let David know Absalom is coming. You, you need to get ready for a big battle. I held him off as long as I could, but he's going to be riding into battle with army. The rest of the chapter details how Absalom kind of plays hide and seek with some of these spies, chasing them down, kind of a cat and mouse situation and then we move on to David's choice to take his people across the river Jordan to move over and be ready and then begin to prepare for the battle and this is where we're at at the end of chapter 17 when David comes across the, the river, he finds some of his friends and they supply him with food and, and animals and the things that he needs. And, and this is the last bit of chapter 17, the last half of verse 29 there. This is what describes and sets up the rest of the story for us. It tells us the shape that David and his people were in. Listen very closely. It says, the people is hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So as we look at David, preparing for this battle, this upcoming battle, we look at the people that he has with him, the, the few hundred, maybe, maybe a couple thousand soldiers he has with him. And the Bible describes this to us. These people are hungry, and thirsty, and weary in 
wilderness. That's not exactly how I want to go into battle, right? Like, you don't see that in these war movies when the commander walks in and goes, Sergeant, are your men ready for battle? And the sergeant says, yes, sir. All of my men are hungry and thirsty and weary and they're lost in the woods. Send us in, sir. Like, that, that's not what we want going into a battle. But, but that's what David has. And we're going to have to see him continue on preparing for this battle using what little he has. Chapter 18, we're going to read about David's preparations with his and David numbered the people that were with him and sent captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent forth the third part of the people under the hand of Joab and the third part under the hand of Abishai and the son, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and the third part under the hand of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. But the people answered, Thou shalt not go forth. If we flee away, they will not care for us, neither if half of us die will they care for us. But now thou art worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, now it is better that thou shouldst incur us out of the city. And the king said unto them, What seemeth you best, I will do. And the king stood by the gate side, and all the people came out by the hundreds and by the thousands. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Hittite, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captives the charge concerning Absalom. The people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim. So we see as David realizes this battle is coming, that, that he begins to prepare. And he begins to prepare like we would think of with any political or any kingdom leader. He begins to prepare his military structure. Now, we're told when David leaves Jerusalem that he's got about 600 soldiers with him, give or take a little bit. He's got his family with him, which means he's got several wives, his children with him, and he would have had several servants that would have traveled with him. And apparently, the way that this reads in the scripture, he has gathered a little bit of support because it says that he set captains over the thousands. So he, he has got some people that are supporters of him following him down. But, but make no mistake, what David has in the way of a military going forward in this battle is nothing compared to what's fixing to come on to. Absalom has all of the armies of Israel and all of the support of Israel following him. We, we saw that the advice that was given to him was 12,000 is too small of a force. So we're expecting Absalom to come in with much, much more than that. David has maybe, maybe just a few thousand. He, he begins to appoint leaders over his units. He has uh, leaders over the structure of his military. And without a doubt, he could look at this and he could see the problems that he had. He could see that he had a small group getting ready for battle. He could see that they weren't prepared for war. That they don't have the supplies that they need for war. They're hungry and thirsty because they've been walking through a desert and hungry and thirsty soldiers don't tend to fight very well. So he knows that this is going to be bad. He also understands the weakness of them. The Bible tells us twice that somebody supplied supplies for him. And that tells me that there wasn't a whole lot of supplies in the middle of the desert. But all that aside, knowing that, we need to look at how David prepared himself for this Because this is, this is the battle. This isn't just a battle. This is the defining moment in David's life. He's going into a battle where, where he's either going to be the king or he's not going to be the king. He tells us that he's planning on riding into the battle, that he's going to pick up a sword and go in and fight himself. So we have David now possibly looking at his own death in this battle. And we know that in the back of David's mind that he's also worried about his son because he tells him, he said, look, Absalom's done some bad things. Absalom has committed treason. But if you beat him on the field of battle, don't, don't kill him. 
David, even though he was betrayed, he was still a father. And he's still thinking about preparing his people to face his son. And so David is looking that in the next coming days, hundreds if not thousands of people will die. Perhaps he will even die. Maybe he and his son will die. And he realizes that my army is unprepared and they're unable to fight. It kind of looks like Kind of looks like the battle is over before he begins. And so we have this picture of David in the scriptures. Exhausted. Can you imagine the emotional strain of trying to be a leader, preparing for battle, knowing that I very well may die, and I'm having to fight my own children, and they very well, very well may die. Of knowing that your force is smaller than the force that you're going to fight against, and knowing that, that people hate you. So David does what David does best. When he's weak, he turns to God. I told you at the beginning of the series that David wrote right around 75-ish of the Psalms that are in your Bible. So about half of them. And out of those, about 25 to 30 of them are written during this time when he's running from Absalom. From the time that Absalom declares himself king until David becomes king again, he writes about 25 to 30 of those. But, but just in this moment, preparing for this battle, David sits down and he writes 12 of those Psalms. Twelve of them come from a time of just a few days, maybe a little over a week, where he is preparing, preparing for this battle. And what we see from David is he's, he's crying out to God, God, I need you in this moment. And we see David perhaps at his weakest of the entire scriptures. One of those psalms is Psalm 42. And I'd like to, I'd like to read that to you. As David is preparing himself emotionally as he's crying out to God, as he's seeking the strength of God. As he goes into this. And this is the whole chapter here. He says, As the heart, that's a deer, as, as the deer panted after the water works, so panted my soul after thee, O God. It sounds familiar this morning, doesn't it? But my soul thirsts for God, but the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul into me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise and with the multitude that kept holy them. Why art thou downcast, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him with the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of all the, the Hermonites and the hill of Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy waters. All thy ways and thy billows are gone over me. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the day to come. And in the night his song shall be with me. And my prayer unto God, unto the God of my life. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the opposition of the enemy? As with the sword in my bones, my enemies reproach, reproach me. While they say daily unto me, prayer is thy God. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him. Who is he that healeth my countenance, and my heareth my countenance, and my God? So we see David, as he's preparing for this battle, he doesn't sound like he's very emotional saying. He doesn't sound like he, he really has a grasp of what God can do. What we see instead is, is a man who is desperate for God. I love the verbiage that he uses. He starts out and he says, As the deer pants for the water, my soul cries out for you. 
That, that, that's very important, the way that, that his emotional state comes off in the words. You, you notice he doesn't say, you know, like a deer who drinks water every day. Uh, like a slightly thirsty deer who travels a little way from water. God, I need you every day. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, like a deer that is panting for water. God, that's, that's how my soul is for you. That's how thirsty I am for you this moment. Have you ever been so tired that you just pant? Like a dog? Not you guys, just me? Okay. A couple weeks ago in the snow, uh, we had a pipe bust, which is a super fun time. Thank, thankful for good friends who helped me out of that. But we had a pipe bust, and, and Jessica comes in the living room, and she says, Brown, what's that noise? I said, it's the dishwasher. And she goes, no, I'm not running the dishwasher. And I realized instantly what it was. We had a pipe bust, and, and we opened the door in our garage, which was just, just flooding, which is okay, because I always wanted my personal skating rink, indoor skating rink, so it worked out for us. But, but the water was just running in, and so I went, I did what I did, I did what I do best. I went into panic mode, right? Like, I've got to figure this out. So I throw on, like, I've got pajamas on, and I throw on some overalls, and I, just, I run outside. And I know I've got to shut the water off, but there's a problem with shutting the water off. Is that there was eight inches of snow on the ground. So finding the, you know, the valve to shut it off was not easy. And I knew in about 15 to 20 feet square area, about where it was. So I go out there, and I dive into the snow. And I'm, like, swimming in the snow, just pushing stuff away, looking for this. I'm, I'm, I can't find it, so I sprint back to the house and I get a rake because I don't know if you've ever raked snow. That's the best I can come up with. And, and when I finally found it after about 15 minutes of this, after breathing all that cold air and all this physical activity that I wasn't used to, I went in the house and, and I was fairly certain I wouldn't have to make it without it. You know, because I just you know, I had to drink some water and I couldn't breathe. For, for the next 20 minutes, I sat there and I just panted because I was so exhausted and I was so tired. I couldn't breathe. I was so thirsty. And when David says, as the deer pants through the water, that, that's what he's saying about his soul. That kind of exhaustion and that kind of desperation when, when you just don't know how the next breath is going to work out. When it, when it hurts that you're so thirsty or, or you desire air so much. David describes himself in that way too. And so we know that preparing for this battle takes a toll on him. And, and he goes on to describe some more of his problems. He says, the only meat I've had has been my tears. And what that means is David has sat around for days and he hasn't eaten. He says, I've eaten my tears, which means instead of eating, he sat around and cried. Not just a little, you know, tears, a rough day. David's been sitting around crying. He's been without supplies. David feels the heaviness of being mocked when people, he says, people ask me, where is your God? David, you are so close to God, where is he now? Well, why isn't he picking you up now, David? You, you trusted in God and he left you. And while we may say that words don't hurt us, we all know that the heaviness of somebody mocking us in our low moments would be the ultimate, ultimate hurt. David goes on to describe his physical state. as He talks about his bones suffering, that, that he's got physical pain. And, and David just describes his soul. He says this three times. He describes his soul as downcast. Oh, my soul. And he's talking to himself. Why are you downcast with me? If you go back and look up the, the Hebrew word, this, this is a word very close to the word we use for, for worship. It means to lay prostrate on the ground. So, so think of somebody not just bowing down, but bowing down to the point that they're laying on the ground. And when David describes his soul, that's what he says. My soul is just bowed and it's given. It is so low. It's just, it's just like I'm laying motionless, laying flat on the ground. Twice he says, my soul is disquieted. 
And, th and that word means that his soul is groaning or even growling. You might even say roaring within him. It's an intense word. It's, it's not just that I'm a little bit uneasy or I don't feel real good today. It's an intense word about the feeling of his soul. So what he's saying is I have this intense feeling of loneliness. I've got this intense feeling of being low. I've got this intense feeling of depression. And I love what David does with that feeling. And I'll be honest with you, this has been one of those weeks for me. I'll be honest with you, I, I pull away from you. I go high, and I think a lot of people do. But David doesn't. David seeks God. And, and the reason for this is David understands his own weakness. And instead of pretending that he wasn't weak, instead of putting on his crown and his cape and walking around with his chest stuck out and with, with his kingliness and saying, I've got it all figured out, David not scared to be God, or David was not scared to seek God. Some of us this week are preparing for some battles in our lives. And we feel a little bit like David. We're weak. We're, we're sad. We've got this feeling of heaviness on us that, that we just can't figure out. And in the back of our minds, some of us are thinking, I, I just don't know if I can do it this way. I don't, know if I, I don't know if I can handle more. We're dealing with this in, in many different ways. These, these problems that take emotional tolls on us. It, it may just be work. I can't take another week of that supervisor. I can't take another week of workplace politics and COVID restrictions. I just can't do it anymore with that coworker. Some of us are preparing for the battle going on another week without our loved ones. And we know every day we've got to wake up and go without them. I don't know if I can make it anymore. How, how am I going to handle tomorrow when I feel this bad today? I know that some of us in here are facing sickness and treatments and options and there's distress around that. And will this ever, ever get better? And there's some of us that are facing family drama. We just can't take it anymore. I hope you don't have family drama like David where it's one of the two of you have to live. <laughs> I feel like everybody, every parent probably got to that point at one point. You know, it's like, it's me or the kids. Somebody's going to come out of this alive. We're facing family drama where we haven't been close to our family or my kids are, are in a rough place or somebody that I love is making a rough decision. We, we're preparing for these battles this week. Many of us live with intense downcast feeling. But the problem with us is, is that honestly, we're so scared to admit how we feel. We're so scared to admit how hurt we are or how scared we are. It took us a second to get here. This is our first take home truth, though. Is that Christians sometimes project false strength? Christians sometimes project false strength. You guys know what I'm talking about when we put up a front. Like somebody asks us, everybody asks us, "How are you doing today?" And our and our soul just screams out, "I'm not good. I can't do it." But what do we say? I'm fine. How are you doing, Eric? Are you good? People that know us well come up and ask us, "Hey, that thing that you're dealing with, work thing, or family thing." How are you handling that? And our soul wants to cry, I'm not. I'm hiding from it. I'm doing unhealthy things to help me cope with this problem. But what do we always say? We put on this front and put it, quote a Bible verse and say, well, it's been rough. God's got it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we don't really reveal ourselves to each other. We don't reveal ourselves to other Christians. And we've become so good at this 
And it's because we compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to strong people. We compare ourselves to church people. They've got it figured out. They're so strong. They never struggle. They never have an emotionally downcast day. We may come to this church and listen to me. You may come to Ramsey Heights and you may think, man, those people up there have figured out. <laughs> we don't. You may think, the family at Ramsey Heights, everybody I go to church with, they're emotionally strong, their faith is strong. That's just not true. This is a church of broken people. And we're not here because we've got it all figured out. Quite the opposite, we're here because we don't have it all figured out. And we're here to support each other through this. Our next take home truth is this, is that you aren't the only one who is weak. You aren't the only one who is weak. Every week, I listen to pastors all over the country. And I listen to people that have name recognition. I listen to people who are like the, the epitome of what a Christian should look like. These people write books that are New York Times bestsellers. These are pastors that lead churches with thousands, and some of them tens of thousands of people in them. And you look at these pastors, and you say, they must have it figured out. They must really have a good connection to God. I wish I could be like them. But if you listen to their messages, they'll tell you that they are weak and broken, just like you and me. You're not the only one who's weak. If you look in the Bible at the story of Elijah, Elijah was maybe the most prolific prophet ever recorded in the Bible. Maybe the closest to God that you could get as a man. He performed miracles. Elijah brought people back from the dead. And he goes into a moment where he takes on 450 prophets of a different religion. And he calls down fire from heaven, proving that God is real and that God is true. And then he immediately goes somewhere and he sits under a tree and he says, God, let me die. I can't do this anymore. You're not the only one who's weak. Charles Spurgeon is known as the Prince of Preachers. He's one of the most, this morning, thousands of pastors across the country are using a Charles Spurgeon quote in their message. Barely a week goes by that I don't look at least some of his material in any scripture that I'm studying. When Charles Spurgeon preached, they had to give out tickets to get in the church, not because they were selling them to make money, so that you could reserve a seat and then people gathered around the doors and the windows to listen to Charles Spurgeon speak, preach. He had that much of an understanding of God in that way to communicate God's word. And in his early 30s, Charles Spurgeon started dealing with a pain that kept him from doing what God called him to about a third of the time. And overworked and stressed out and guilty about not being able to mourn, Charles Spurgeon is what we would describe as clinically depressed. But he was one of the best preachers not the only one that's weak. David, King David, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. A guy as a teenager who walks out onto a field with a slingshot to face a giant. He reaches a point where he cries out to God and he says, God, I can't do it in this battle. You're not the only one who's weak. We tend to think that strength is what makes us a Christian, but, but actually it's just the opposite. And if you look around, you're in family here at Ramsey Hudson. We can broken people. And I just want you to know as you come here, we embrace your weakness. We embrace your brokenness. We embrace your mistakes. And we embrace you because we love you. Like we're all, all working to figure this out. This time. And it's okay in this family. It's okay to be vulnerable in this family. 
It's okay to come up on a Sunday morning and say, Brown, I'm having a hard time. Would you pray with me? Guess where we're going? We're going to go find some more we're going to pray. It's okay to walk up to a family member in church and say, hey, I'm struggling this week. Could you put me on the prayer list? Can I talk to you about some things? Can you help me out a little bit? That is okay in this church. Because as a church, that's what we're called to do. Is we're called to embrace each other. We're called, called to embrace each other's weakness. And I would say that if you have a hard time being vulnerable with your church, that there's a heart problem. Because what we're thinking is, uh, I would be a burden to somebody if I wanted to talk to them about my weakness this week. Somebody probably wouldn't like me asking them to pray for me. People don't want to hear about my problems. And I'll tell you where that heart comes from. We tend to think that others think the way that we think. And so if you think people view you that way, it's possibly because you view others that way. That if they came to you with a need that you might find them as a burden, one extra thing to do this week. But as a family, as a family, we're called to pick each other up. And we're called to be vulnerable with each other. And it's okay to be weak. As a matter of fact, the only people I'm worried about this room are the people who think they have their weakness. It's those of us who are sitting here thinking, this one doesn't apply to me. I don't have problems. I don't have battles. I don't have emotionally down weeks. I'm fearful for you because you're the weakest of us all. And just that you don't know. But here is what's important about our weakness. The next thing truth is this, is that God has a plan for our weakness. God has a plan for your weakness. For what you're dealing with as you prepare for your battle this week, next week, and the next couple months, God has a plan for your weakness. You, you heard that right. We tend to think if God's going to use us, we've got to be strong. We, we tend to think that if God looks at us and He sees our weaknesses as something that, that keeps Him from using us. But the truth is, is that weakness is a part of our faith. You can't be a follower of Christ if you can't identify your because at the very core, we identify our need for Christ based on our weakness compared to his strength. So if we're sitting here this morning and we're saying that God can't use us because of our weakness, we misunderstand the scriptures. Because God's plan is to use us in our weakness. And so the question then becomes now, not are we weak, but it becomes uh, what do we do with our weakness? That's what David was struggling with. I love David's emotional breakdown moment here. Not because I like that he went through, but I love how raw and real he was about this moment. David in the psalm, he argues with himself. You ever find yourself arguing with yourself? Slapping yourself in the face? Brian, quit that. Don't say that. Why did you say that? You find yourself. That's where David's at in his emotional state. And this is what he keeps asking himself. Says, Soul, why, why do you feel this way? Why don't you put your hope in God? Why don't you come out of this? You've got to do better. So David's struggling with, what do I do with my weakness in this moment? I want to introduce you to someone who, who handled their weakness as best as probably anybody. I've got a picture coming up up here. This is Fanny Crosby. And you don't know that you know her, but you do know her. Fanny Crosby wrote over 9,000 hymns. And hymns that we sing almost every Sunday. I looked through a list up and I described a few. She wrote Blessed Assurance. She wrote He Hideth My Soul. Jesus is Tenderly Calling You Home. Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. Praise Him, praise Him, Jesus, our Blessed Redeemer. To God be the glory. She wrote all of those and many, many, many more. Many more that we all know. And uh, as I was researching her this past week, 
I saw one estimate that said there have been over 100 million books published with one or more of her songs. Over 100 million books sold with one of her songs in it. I look at Fanny Crosby and I think, you've got to figure it out, sister. If you, can, if you can put into words your trust and your faith in God the way that you did in all of those songs, if you can write songs that stand the test of time for 150 years, you're probably going to figure it out. You're the kind of Christian I want to be. You're strong. You don't have weakness. You, you have this perfect relationship with God. But Fanny Crosby was not strong. She was weak. At six weeks old, she developed an eye infection. With the, the town doctor being gone, they, they called some other guy. I read one that just called him Quack. I don't know where he came from. But he apparently didn't know what he was doing. And he told them, he said, if you'll take some mustard and put some spices in it and rub it on her eyes, it'll get rid of the infection. As a six-week six-week-old baby, and she was left blind by this medical practice that came from somebody who didn't know what they were talking about. So she lived the rest of her life with blindness. At, at six months old, her dad passed away, so she grew up never knowing her father. After she married, the child, a small child, lost to SIDS. And after that, her husband grew emotionally distanced, and he pulled away. And though she professed to love him, until their dying day. They, they lived, they stayed married, but they lived separated from the rest of their life. On top of that, her job was writing songs. She couldn't do a whole lot more with her blindness. And even though she wrote 9,000 of them, she'd write about three a week, and she got paid about a dollar a pencil. So the places she lived were, were very, very poor. And if you look at Fanny Crosby, and you think about the words that she wrote, you can't tell me being blind, growing up without a father, losing a child, going through a separation with your husband, and living in these conditions, you can't tell me she didn't have some dark days. You can't tell me she didn't have some days when her soul was downcast. I wonder how many of those songs were written with tears running down her face. She was weak before God. But like David, like David, Fanny did not deny her weakness. She didn't walk around saying, oh, blindness isn't that bad. It's not that bad to deal with the loss of a child. I'm going to make it. And she didn't quote some Bible verse that made it sound like she was really leaning on God. Instead, she embraced her weakness. She embraced the fact that this is hard and this is rough on me. And then she let that weakness lead her to another strength. Listen to this. This is a quote from Fanny Crosby that tells me that she understood the purpose in her weakness and that she embraced it. She says it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank Him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things around me. You see a woman here who has a weakness, a bodily problem that she says, even, even if somebody could take it away, I wouldn't let on. She embraced her. And she understood that the purpose of her weakness was that it allowed her a window to God that a lot of people don't have. It allowed her a connection to God that a lot of people don't have. And that she was able to write the way she could write because of this. See, these songs that we listen to, they did not flow out of her strength. These songs that we sing and listen to flowed out of her weakness in life. Our last take-home truth is this, and I want you to listen very carefully because this can change your faith if you really God doesn't need your strength. 
God doesn't need your strength. He needs you to embrace your weakness so that you can seek His strength. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us that, that His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Now, now let me be clear about what that's saying. That's not saying that God needs us to be weak so that He can be strong. That's not saying that anything that we do or we experience can make God stronger. What that means, what that means is that in our weakness, in our weakness, He is glorified. Our weakness magnifies His strength. And when we are weak and we seek His strength, it turns us into people like Penny Crosby. It turns us into people that can freely admit, I have this problem, I have this issue, I have this weakness, but I can rely on the strength of God. See, weakness isn't a distraction to God. It is an opportunity for Him. It is part of His plan. And listen to me. What you're dealing with today is part of God's plan. He will work through you, through your weakness, if you'll let Him. The truth of it is, is our weakness is not about us. Our weakness is about God being shown through us. His strength or showing our weakness. Live if you want to start to head this way. I know that that's probably not what we want to hear, is that we need to, need to, Embrace our weakness, that it's okay. But the truth is, when it comes to God, that His strength is what we need. And His strength is what we need to see. Fanny Crosby said these words once again. She had come so close to God because of her weakness that she began to celebrate Him. And a pastor coming through talked to Fanny Crosby and said, Fanny, if only God had given you sight. If only God had given you sight with all the other talents that you have, imagine what you could have done for God. And I love how close Penny was to God. She, she said these words. She said, oh, I'm okay with being blind. If I had it my way, I would have been blind even before those first six, six weeks of life. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I will ever see is that of my Savior. See, she understood her weakness. And she understood not only her physical weakness, she understood her spiritual weakness. She understood that she See, we all have this weakness called sin. Every last one of us, and it will eat us alive. But our weakness was an opportunity for God's glory to shine. When he said, I'm not going to let their sin kill them. I'm not going to let them suffer for their sin. He sent Jesus Christ and died on the cross to take our sins away. And three days later, he proved his strength because of our weakness by coming back from the dead. And this morning, as we get ready for our response to whatever, I just want to ask you, You've embraced your weakness first as a sinner and just understood that you're not perfect. I love you, but you're not. And that you need a Savior. And you need to call out to His strength because He is the only one who has the strength over life. And if you're like me and you've had one of those weeks where you're facing a battle, this is a time for you to embrace your weakness. Grab somebody, grab me, and say, Could you pray for me? And it's not weak to come to the altar and find a place just for you and God to, to cry out to Him. Embrace your weakness and let God 